0: Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 66. I am so excited today. How excited are you, Jamie, you ask? Uh, I am so stupendously excited because I have one of my all-time favorite drummers as a guest today, Uh, the, the master of groove Uh, who you will know certainly from all of his years on Saturday Night Live. I will be joined by the magnificent Sean Pelton right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best-kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the U.S., Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center, or heart, of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than White Hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned Red Hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of Red Hickory Drumsticks. To learn more about Lost Cabo's drumsticks, visit them online at lostcabostrumsticks.com. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabo's drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabo's drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, just really excited today. Uh, I had the great fortune of getting hooked up with Sean Pelton. Um, Sean has just played with with everybody on earth. I mean, he is just such an in-demand session guy, uh, clinician. Uh, Of course, you know, Saturday Night Live uh, since 1992, I want to say. I I believe it was 92 when he took over the drum throne at Saturday Night Live. Uh, Of course, he also helped out our good friend Levon Helm up in Woodstock with the Midnight Ramble shows. Um, He just did a charity event where he was double drumming with Dr. Steve. Gad, um, Sean has just done so many just amazing records, and we talked to him about all of those things, including how he got his start, where he grew up, all that good stuff. You just couldn't ask for a cooler cat than than Sean, and I am just absolutely thrilled to have him on the drum shuffle. So help me welcome the great Sean Pelton to the drum shuffle. Hey, good afternoon, Sean. How's it going today, brother?
1: Man, everything's good. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, man, thanks so much for taking the time to do it. We really appreciate it. I've been such a fan of your playing over the years. It's a real thrill for me to have you on the drum shuffle, man.
1: Yeah, fun. This is a blast, man. Thanks for thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, Sean, what we typically do with our guests, um, and you can spend as much or as little time on this as you'd like, but, you know, it, growing up, you know, you're from Kansas City originally. Tell us a little bit about how you first got into music and drumming.
1: Yeah, well, I spent I, my childhood, we moved around a little bit. So I lived in Louisiana for a while in Arkansas and then um, mostly grew up in a town that's sort of near Kansas City, about 50 miles uh, east, this town, smaller town called Warrensburg. And uh, my mother taught there. It was a lucky town to be in, in that it had like a small state college you know thing there, and um, so what was so cool about that was sort of having access to a music department thing you know instead of just being stuck in the middle of a a hayfield, you know, I had access to like a a college music department as a as a kid growing up, and you could kind of go there and watch concerts and then I eventually started taking lessons there at the percussion department and um so that whole thing of being there and, and uh, the fortunate thing of it being sort of a small college town with a music program, uh, I think was really, really ended up being great, you know, and was able to sort of get it together with uh, putting an audition together, you know, to try to get into music school. and um, But, you know, also at that time growing up around there, it was amazing, like, there were opportunities, um, like the Stan Kenton, tin band would like do these summer camps and i got to go a couple of those they would like camp out in springfield missouri i think it like south what was that southwest missouri state or something like that and um that would have been in the late 70s and um gary hobbs was the drummer great drummer in the band then and i remember being there as a kid going and you know just god you learn so much and being exposed to like a real working band and all these other players and and dave weckle was from st louis and he was there at one of those i remember and i remember gary hobbs you know just like saying to all us drummers in one of the master classes you know like this guy is going to go on to be like you know revolutionary and then you know he, he did was just so incredible to, yeah to us. he was from st louis you know and that he was at one of those things in the late 70s and you know the jamie abersall camps and all that and um so back then, I guess that you know, in the late when you were going to school, you know, music was still a requirement, you know, and um, when you sort of go through the band program and how it sort of leads to kind of if you're into the drum set and all of a sudden you're in the the jazz band, you know, and so growing up around there it was it was it worked out great, you know, and also I was fortunate enough to start working uh, at a young age, like I was in a band that was doing gigs by the time I was in ninth grade, you know. So that that was so lucky. Like, I was way into the jazz thing and that whole thing, and then but also able to run around and play VFW halls and, and do gigs. And um, that's one thing that seemed to, like, really paid off, just having a wide range of uh, exposure to a ton of different styles and being interested in a lot of different stuff as far as surviving you know later in new york cuz i think the wider range you have as a drummer you know the more opportunities you have you know and instead of just being like somebody that does one slot you know the the more ground you can cover i think the more easier it is can be to survive you know later
0: on and stuff yeah for, for sure man and and you know you're one of the most versatile cats out there now i mean you you do sessions that range from you know, I, I don't know, pink to, you know, all the live at live from Daryl's house stuff. I mean, you're just, you, you cover a lot of ground with your playing. Um, now, you know, I know that some folks will know that you went to the Jacobs school of music at, at Indiana university up in Bloomington. And I think it's been discussed before too, that you did some studying with Kenny Aronoff, you know, during yeah, yeah. that time. Um, How did you end up at Indiana? Uh, Was it just because it was, you know, kind of close to home in the Midwest? Or did you, I guess, did you shop schools to attend is my question?
1: Yeah, you know, like everybody, when they're trying to figure that out back then, you know, there there was Eastman and Miami and North Texas State and all those great schools. And then You know, from that Abersol experience, I knew that the whole jazz program in Bloomington and and this guy, David Baker, who ran the program. And um, so I put an audition thing together and then got accepted to IU. And then because IU was like a public school as opposed to sort of like Eastman was a conservatory, like private thing, IU was cheaper to go to. And um, then I kind of got some scholarship help there. And so that led to that. And then what was interesting is... um, I was a jazz. It was a jazz. I was a jazz major, and this guy ran the percussion department there, George Gaber, who was like sort of a legendary percussion teacher, and a lot of people went through that thing. Like Jeff Hamilton went there, and Erskine went there, and then you know you mentioned Kenny, and and um, but there wasn't at that time there wasn't an applied like drum set teacher like now Steve uh, Steve Howell is there, who who does a great job, and that the percussion department there is like so world class what they've got going on now compared is you know, what they offer and stuff compared to like the early eighties, you know, when I was there. But what was so interesting is it wasn't a applied drum set teacher there, so um I got to go study with Alan Dawson for a couple summers uh, when I was first there, my freshman sophomore year, and that was like, wow, you know, so amazing to <laughs> to hang with, you know, it's like, oh my God, this is the guy that taught Tony Williams, and you know, and so many people like Billy Kilson and Terry Lynn, and I think Vinny, so many incredible list of drummers that have, you know, he influenced.
0: Yeah. Now, was he, so, at, was he at Berkeley at that time? Were you going no, to
1: yeah, he was teaching out of his house in Lexington, Massachusetts and then I had this crazy lucky thing where I had a girlfriend whose sister, sister's father-in-law like lived in Lexington or something, you know, and so (laughs) I was able to like stay there and like mow the yard and take care of the house. Anyway, it was like really.
0: That's fantastic.
1: But, so what was the trip is just being there at this IU thing and then they're not really being an applied drum set teacher and having to sort of um, you know, I was hungry to still learn and stuff. And then this opportunity with Alan, which was really life-changing to be exposed to his whole, his thing. And, uh, you know, just his teaching style with the whole, um, he would break the lessons down into like three sort of segments, 20 minutes, like an hour lesson would be 20 minutes of different things. And he had this whole rudimental thing, which was the first 20 minutes. He gave you like three rudiments a week. And you dive into him like you know, open to close that whole thing where you start out slow and fast and then back slow again. But then um, he had this this rudimental ritual thing that I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard about, and it's like it's, it's like seven pages of all these rudiments, like the you know the American twenty six, but then all these Swiss rudiments and all these other variations. And it was really this incredible like fundamental thing where he put them together in four four measure phrases and you would play them over like a samba thing with your feet and some different patterns and you had to memorize it and, um, had to play with brushes so it really, you know, you weren't, you were really making your hands make it happen as opposed to just, you know, rebounding and stuff and, um, so there was that part of it and then he would get into this whole syncopation, syncopation book thing, you know, with all the different variations and stuff and, um, It was so cool being exposed to that, because, you know, the Syncopation book is just these rhythms, but the idea of being able to apply any kind of concept to it, you know. Um, And then, the last 20 minutes, you would play with him, like, he'd play vibes, and you'd play drum, and we'd be making music, you know, and kind of like different song forms, different time signatures, and, you know, maybe it'd be blues one week, and then rhythm changes, and then different forms and stuff. And then he'd play vibes and you'd play drums and you had to solo over the form of the tune. And But the, the Alan Dawson thing was just, wow, you know, to be exposed to that. And then the other trippy thing was then in Bloomington, it was the time um, in the early 80s when the whole John Mellencamp or John Cougar and all that was just starting to happen. And Kenny Aronoff was there. That's where Mellencamp was based out of Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, so, man, I sought him out and said, oh, man, will you please teach me some stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, man, that led into a really close relationship of sort of following him around and watching him play. And then he, you know, having lessons and, uh, you know, several years while I was in Bloomington. And he he was, uh, you know, incredible influence. Um, and at that time, it's right when people really started playing big and physical. And it was sort of like in the 80s, you know, where the snare drum was often mixed like the loudest thing. You know, born in the USA, you know. Yeah. You
0: know? <laughs> right on.
1: And uh, so his sort of physical presence and the idea of like trying to project to the back of the row of a of a stadium tour thing, you know, and all that was really a trip to be exposed to, especially, you know, having to also swim in the whole jazz thing and playing piano you know trios and um but man it was so good for me to have all this thrown at me and to try to figure it out for myself and I I feel lucky that I didn't just come out of school you know being like a jazz cat that I was really thrown into all these different streams and i guess the other element there that was so great was um i was in a band that started working all the time and it sort of did like R&B dance music of that day. So like, you know, I think Thriller had just come out, the Michael Jackson thing and, you know, that period where it was sort of the dance music thing, but a lot of sequencers and some of the gigs we played with like tracks to sequences and it was like four or five nights a week sometimes. And that that was amazing at sort of centering my time and getting my pocket together and playing groove music of that era which was you know sort of in your face and simple but with a lot of heart and feel and the groove thing yeah um so anyway it was just wow lucky you know and um that era there when I was at IU there was a lot of great players there like Chris Bodie was there at that time and then Bob Hurst was there went on to play with Winton and all these people uh, had a great jazz still doing amazing things and keyboard player Jim Beard who went on to work with Wayne Shorter and the Brecker brothers and stuff and um, so I've been really lucky.
0: (laughs) Yeah well I mean I I think it goes without saying you know your your time that you spent in that you know very nurturing educational environment you know it 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 kind of uh, you know it was the crucible that that molded you into into the young man that that you were gonna be when you graduated. And, you know, I, I guess I'm curious, after you graduated from from IU, you know, at, at what point did you decide to make the move to New York City? Was it immediate or did you hang around for a little while? Did you go home, you know? Wh-
1: yeah, yeah. How- know, I, I was working in that band, you know, that band was still together and we were working consistently enough. And then I was still, uh hanging out with Kenny and taking lessons and going around and watching him play and um, soaking all of that in. So it took about four and a half years to graduate, and then I think I left in 88, but I was lucky enough to come to New York or come to the East Coast with a gig, and it was with an artist, this guy John Eddy, who had made his record out at Mellencamp studio, and Kenny had played on it. And then when it came time for the record to come out and the guy needed to go on the road, you know, Kenny wasn't going to leave Mellencamp for this new startup artist. And uh, so I moved to New Jersey, and that whole Asbury Park thing is where he was kind of based. He was kind of like a springsteen s artist on Columbia, and this would have been the late 80s. And that's how I got to the East Coast with a gig, um, which I feel really fortunate about as opposed to having to just show up in New York and maybe start washing dishes or something
0: <laughs> like that. Right on, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, in New York at that time was a trip um, especially like in the early 90s there was sort of the crack epidemic and that whole thing about surviving in New York with your gear and man, you know when I first lived there I lived in Spanish Harlem and the car would get broken into eventually the car the truck I moved out got stolen, you know and chopped chopped up for parts <laughs> and then they took the license plate and um, put it on another car which started like doing some illegal stuff anyway I had to go down and prove that it wasn't me and there was a lot of it's hard man in New York Yeah, you
0: know we, to welcome to the big to city right I mean yeah it's,
1: yeah 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 they were selling crack out of our doorway sort of down on the Lower East Side and um, in the East Village when I lived there and it's tough man it's tough that part of it uh, and um, but I I was working the John Eddie thing kind of fell out after a couple of years We got dropped from Columbia and then we got picked up by Electra and I saw, like, all this bread go into the first record on Elektra. They had Neil Young's producer, producer record. We went up to Bearsville in Woodstock and made this record. And then Elektra didn't put the record out. You know, it didn't come out. Oh. <laughs> so there were, like, some really trippy things as far as just the dream about being in a band and making records and all that that sort of you know, was cold water in the face like, oh my God, so well, this, is, this didn't work out. Even though, and it was heartbreaking to be signed to a label and be a part of something and then record on a record, you know, this thing for Elektra and it not, it not come out, you know. So that thing started to fall apart and then I started freelancing around New York and a lot of blues gigs, like in Jersey, there was this band called The Lanes and a lot of people worked, a lot of great New York players went through and um, there was the horn section guys that played with Springsteen that went on to be on the Conan show like Mark Pender and La Bamba and they had pickup gigs that you know so there was this community of freelance freelance work and um, a lot of singer songwriters gigs at the bitter end and it was interesting because I I didn't really think of myself as coming to new york to play with a bunch of singer songwriters it sort of became like a sort survi- what happened just to survive you know yeah and um then um uh, that's how that the audition for snl came about was um kind of the word of mouth thing that happens you know with musicians and um Chris Parker had done the show for a long, the Saturday Night Live thing for a long time. And then Matt Chamberlain had done it for a year. Amazing, you know, both of those guys. And then I think Matt decided to step away from it and, you know, went on to have this incredible career, obviously, that we all know of, you know, made so, such a great musician. And um, so this, this thing opened up and there were some auditions and um, G.E., G.E. Smith, who was running the band at the time, um... the bass player that was he he called the bass player and said hey man you know uh, Matt's decided to leave we're gonna have some auditions do you know anybody and I had just played with Paul on sort of a pickup gig the night before um, at the Lone Star Roadhouse and um, you know in one of those kind of freelance gigs where it was the Uptown Horns were on it and you know great musicians and uh, anyway he remembered me from that and that's sort of how the the thing led to the audition for SNL.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, I say all the time, this is why you give a hundred and ten percent on every single gig because you never know what it's going to lead to, right? Oh I
1: mean, man, absolutely. Especially in a place like New York. Um, I mean, anywhere. And I think that man, that's such a great point. And um, you know, there's so much to what you're saying there because I remember when I first started freelancing, I was playing with this girl a songwriter and you know I did everything right like I showed up on time I learned the music and I was really professional but I didn't really like the music that much and uh, and then we did a gig and in New York the thing where like you'll do a showcase and then maybe six months later there'll be another round of showcases and they might try to pull the people back together and rehearse again and do a whole other cycle you know and I didn't get called back for the second round of or the second part of the gigs and I was like man I tried to really look at what was going on with that and what I learned from it was I think that you know the artist sort of sensed that even though I did my whole thing that I really wasn't sort of present let's say in a support way you know emotionally or something I don't know it's hard to put into words you know but it made me realize like how much of um, how much there is to like you know the attitude part of it, and the being there beyond just sort of like showing up and chopping wood behind somebody. But um, it's hard for me to put into words. But when you when then you meet you know people like Keltner or Steve Gadd or Ferroni or all these people, you you can sense like their their people skills and their hang thing is just completely you know amazing, and how comfortable people feel around them, and how comfortable they can make people and that has so much to do with working as a freelancer, you know, beyond just uh, who maybe is the best drummer in the world, you know? Um, yeah, for the,
0: sure. I mean, there, yeah. there there's all kinds of guys that you see, you know, every day, you know, especially now with, you know, YouTube and Instagram and all that stuff, you see people that can just play circles around anybody on earth and they may not be in a, in a band because, you know, they're, they're just not good on a bus or right, <laughs> you know right. or whatever the case may be
1: no man that's so interesting and the ability to sort of put yourself in the other person's shoes and you know like as a drummer if if you needed a bass player for a gig you know do you want the guy on the six string bass that can play 300 miles an hour or do you really need somebody who play has a great feel can play simple parts play for the music the song and then, like you said, is like a fun hang, you know, ah, yeah, it's amazing. yeah, you're so right, man, so right about all that
0: yeah it's you know it, the the two hours that you spend on stage, and I've said this so many times the the two hours that you spend on stage is important. It's the other twenty two hours that you're trapped in an aluminum tube, <laughs> you know, traveling down the road or through the skies or whatever that that really separates the men from the boys, I think. Well, so, so 92, you get the chair uh, in the Saturday Night Live band. And this is a question that I have been just dying to ask you for, for many, many years. You have been there literally, I I mean, the 90s on Saturday Night Live is just legendary with some of the guys that came through that show, the, the comedians, the actors, you know, have you ever like physically had a hard time going into a commercial break because you were laughing so hard?
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are times where there's, because it's live TV, there are things that can happen. Like, you know, the show is sort of a a trippy miracle that they even can pull it off. Like (laughs) it's wild. The Saturday we do this run through thing. Well, like the schedule on Saturday is we show up at 11 a.m. and we do sort of a two-hour kind of band rehearsal hang and then the cast comes in at one and then we sort of have a break but we're on call in case we're involved in any sketches and then we come back around 4:30 or 5 for sure for like a monologue when the person that comes out that's hosting and they do their speech and then sometimes they like you know do a music number and and that could sometimes get trippy if they're running through the set and them being able to hear the band, which could be like, you know, in a whole nother part of the studio and, um, but there's a run through show on Saturday at eight o'clock from eight to 10. And it's like, you know, the show goes live for only 90 minutes and it's an extra half hour of like material that, man, they are still trying to figure out what they're going to go live on air with an hour before you know, the downbeat at 11.30 a.m. when it goes live to to air, you know, and it's just such a... I've always thought that was so amazing that (laughs) by Saturday night at 10 o'clock, they're still trying to sort it out as opposed to, you know, like, okay, Thursday, we know what we're doing. Thursday, by Thursday (laughs) night, we're going to really hone in on it, you know. Right. So, um, yeah, it's wild that... And because it's live, you know, there's been things where uh, a wall will fall down on a set or, like, there was one thing where it was Lady Gaga was on and then Madonna was going to show up and there was a music thing that was supposed to happen but then the crowd, the crowd went so loud, they went so crazy because they saw Madonna walk on with Lady Gaga or something like that and then the crowd was yelling so much that when the music started, they couldn't hear the music and then, you know, so it's interesting how there can be a lot of uh, potential there for trippiness and then, you know, the the famous things were like the Ashley Simpson episode where, you know, and that was wild, where um, it was, unfortunately, the drummer, you know, accidentally triggered the wrong track from the Pro Tools rig, you know, the yeah. second time around. And I felt bad. That's heartbreaking when that happens, you know. But, um,
0: um, so I mean, just, just watching the show, all the years that you've been in that drum chair, I mean, you know, I, I mean, this is during the era where, you know, you had Christopher Walken and Will Ferrell doing the more cowbell thing, for God's sakes. and. Yeah. I mean, your band trying to go into a commercial break with a musical interlude right after that happened, I don't know that I could have counted in a band and played a groove. You know what I'm saying? Because right, right. I laughed for two days over that skit, you know? <laughs>
1: right. No, I mean, you're right, man. There's been some really classic, um, funny things go down. And, you know, people like Chris Farley and, like you said, Will Ferrell and, um, you know the different comedians that have been on there. And, um, it's interesting, you know, the show can be up and down. It can be really funny and then it can hit some low periods. And, um, but I just feel so lucky to be there, man. I tell you, it's been such a fortunate, fortunate thing, you know, man. Then the band is, you know, really strong. Like, um, James Genius plays bass. He goes out with Herbie all the time too. And, um, Lenny Pickett runs the band who, you know, was in Tower of Power with, uh, Garibaldi and all those guys he has amazing stories about rooming with Garibaldi back in the day and <laughs> David, you know, warming up on a, a practice pad that's kind of like the size of a quarter that's strapped around his leg and <laughs> and um, oh man, uh, Steve Teray is in the band. is kind of an iconic jazz trombone guy. He used to play with Blakey and hearing Steve tell Art Blakey stories and he toured with Woody Shaw and oh, it's amazing, really just, and, um, I couldn't, I couldn't feel more blessed to be there. Wow.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, now when you first went to SNL, you know, you mentioned earlier, G.E. Smith was kind of the musical director. And of course he had played with, you know, Hall and Oates back earlier in his career. Was that kind of the connection that, that you ended up being, you know, the the primary drummer for all the live, live from Daryl's house, uh, stuff is, is that the connection?
1: Yeah, what's well, interesting It was through a guy that this bass player, T-Bone Walk, who was uh, him and GE used to play with, um, with Hall & Oates back in the 80s, the big run that they had. And then T-Bone was a part of the SNL band throughout the 80s. And then I think a couple years before I started, he had stepped away to sort of do more producing and stuff like that. But I had known of T-Bone because T-Bone also was involved in producing some of the John Eddie stuff that was on Columbia and um, so then throughout the 90s there would be times where Daryl would work on a solo record and different stuff like that and T-Bone would would have me come up and do some recording and 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 he was such a great musician he ended up passing away a while back It's very sad but um, so when the Live from Daryl's House thing started they had a, a great drummer that was touring with them but he was based on the West Coast and they wanted someone to to that could get up there easy at um, you know, on the East Coast. And, um, uh, so I did about the first two or three seasons and it was through the connection of the T-Bone walk guy that I knew, you know, and, and, uh, okay. and it was sort of, it was all very entwined with, with SNL, but sort of indirectly, you know, and, um, and now Brian Dunn does the thing, uh, and he's a great, great pocket drummer, great musician. And, uh, he's been doing it for the last several years, you know, but, um, that was a really fun, fun thing to be a part of, man, you know? Um, and, and then when we started it, we never didn't know if it was really going to, if anybody was really going to give care about it. But, um, you know, there's been some classic, classic shows on that, on that with Daryl and the people he brings to the house, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great show and, you know, it, it's just, I, for me, you know, kind of a semi-pro guy, to be able to see all these different artists come through there and just the the you know just the jam aspect of it is just absolutely incredible you know it's just the the musicianship is so wonderful and and you were in another situation very similar to that that's got a a, a very dear spot in my heart is you know you used to be part of the Midnight Ramble band up at Levon Helms place you know up outside of Woodstock and you know we said before we started the interview Levon Helm is one of those drummers that y- you cannot teach what Levon does you're either born with kind of that greasy <laughs> you know groove or you're not i mean talk to me a little bit about some of your experience with the midnight ramble because i i know that's got to be a highlight of your career
1: yeah it really does being being around levon and some of these people um Man, you can learn so much just sort of being in the room and seeing how they handle situations and the, the choices they sort of make musically and all that, and then just their physical presence behind the kit and and how they approach a feel and and um, you know, Levon's goes way back to some really hip shit, like, well, he'll play both hands on the snare drum, maybe, and not go to the hi-hat, you know, and uh, sort of snare drum-based rock and roll type of old Palmer, or two hands playing eighth notes type of things, uh, like, you know, one on the hi-hat, and, and but both hands playing eighth notes. And, uh, man, his sound, you know, kind of, he kind of had a muffled sound, he would muffle the drums a little bit, and um, and just his touch, but the the... The thing that I just love so much about Levon was he was really positive and inclusive, and he's a happy drummer. The smile thing, and it—it it, there was never any like darkness. It was always that music was a celebration, and um, just like a lot of joy about making music. And you know, in New York, like you know, sometimes it, cats can get trippy or jaded, or you know, there's in any music thing sometimes it can but man Levon just had this joy about making music and a smile Ah, it was just so inspiring to be around and then you know to be able to play double drums with him on some tunes and then he would go out and play mandolin on some things and you know playing drums behind him on some of those tunes when he went out front and um, but man he was really positive and inclusive there were so many people that got to do that that went you know through those Tony Leone, a great drummer, and Justin, uh, who was an engineer, that ended up playing a lot when they would go out on the road sometimes. And um, so that whole scene up there, you know, I think Dijonette would come by sometimes and um, people that lived up in the Woodstock area. And uh, he made it feel like such an inviting, warm celebration of music, you know. And it was it was everybody was welcome type feeling you know i just and it's i was god it was awesome
0: it's yeah, awesome for for sure well and you mentioned double drumming and you know um i have got to at least mention this um just a few weeks ago um you did the uh i think it was the 3rd annual the the love rocks new york city um benefit show and you know the the two drummers were you and Dr. Steve Gad. <laughs> talk, yeah. talk to me a little bit about how intimidating is it to know that you're going to be double drumming with Steve Gad?
1: <laughs> oh, man, I know. Wow. You know, that's just, oh my God, just how lucky uh, of an opportunity to, I, you know, it's like you said, it's the third year, and man, these these things, like, this year, I think, like, it was Robert Plant and then um, Anna Nancy Wilson from Heart, and that was sort of the first time they have been together for a couple years because of some kind of, you know, internal thing that was happening. And then Cheryl Quo was on the bill this year, and that was fun to see her because I had a chance to do some touring and recording with her back in the day and see her again was a blast. But, I mean, these list of the artists, it's a long show, and, like, let's try and think... Uh, Taj Mahal was on it with Kev Moe. Uh, Jimmy Vaughn was on it. Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Um, Grace Potter, Lucas Nelson, who's Willie Nelson's you know kid that ended up... He's so soulful and great um, musician, and he's involved, I think, in a lot of the music from A Star Is Born with that band of his. Um, and then last year, I think Fagan did it. You know, Fagan did it, and that was amazing because Gad did... Um, some of those classics, Steel lead did Asia, you know, and just being there seeing Steve do that solo, you know, like 10 feet away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> just mind-blowing, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. But, uh, Amy Harris, Nora Jones, Mavis Staples, I made it good to go, Joe Walsh did it one of the years, Jackson Brown. And what's wild is just, you know, you really gotta do your homework because you sort of have when there's that many artists, it's not like you have three hours with every artist. You basically have, like, about 20 minutes, you know? And you've got, like, as a drummer, it's such a trip, you know? Like, I also do this Songwriters Hall of Fame thing, and then once I cover for Anton on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame one year, and, like, you've got, like, 10 seconds to make an impression that you sort of have it together, you know? <laughs> and, and that your feel is happening and that you're confident about what's going It's not like it's oh. I think this is how it goes. It's like, man, you have to know how it goes, and you have to kill it, and you have to, it's, you know, with conviction, or if it's about, you know, if it's something soft, you know, you have to have enough of them in your monitor, you know, if you're you're not laying something down, but actually fitting in what they're doing, and, you know, the dance of all that, and, um, but the thing with Steve, wow, just, it's been so amazing, because, you know, that thing that we're talking about, personalities, you know, Steve is, you he makes you feel so comfortable. And um, like the communication thing that we were able to get going kind of right away, because uh, it's like, there was no ego involved about anything. And like, it was all about the music. And there would be things where he would want to do fills together sometimes, you know, so we'd, like we. one of the things we did, we did a Zeppelin tune and uh, a whole lot of love, you know, and there was, out, of, out of that breakdown, I think there's a signature fill, that you know, like these machine gun 16th note things. And Steve was like, man, yeah, let's do this together. Let's do this together. It's so powerful when we just nail the shit out of something, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we would write in certain fills sometimes, and then there'd be other times where, you know, he said, man, I'm just going to lay this down and, and you go crazy, or, or vice versa, and uh, well, we would alternate at the end of phrases. But he made it so comfortable, and it was just fun, you know? And, the, uh, you know, that can go... When you play with two drummers, it can, can be a mess, you know? So to... to uh, Him to have it, have it feel so effortless with his communication stuff, you know, and... Um, you know, we'd go through the charts together and and try to make sense of everything because it was a lot of material in a short time. You know, so it was really like we'd go upstairs together and and dive into it and you know. And he has no problems if there's iconic parts and stuff. It's not like, well, I'm I'm Steve Gad. I'm gonna just do my thing. You know, he <laughs> he has respect out of like what the track is about if it needs to be that. And then you know, like we had to do Barracuda one year um, with with um, with ann wilson and and you know that has that really big busy bass drum part do 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 type thing, and you know it just made sense not for both of us to try that, but like you know he carried the really busy thing, and like maybe I just played downbeats, or there would be like common sense things that would come up you know where like one of us would take a lead role or you know one of us might play percussion and then we'd bring double drums in on a chorus and then it might come back out on the second verse and go back to tambourine or something and then stay in from the guitar solo out you know there were like different things that we would do and then sometimes he would just do a tune or you know he'd let me do one or there'd be you know will would kind of like assign different things and um but his ability to make it seem so effortless and seamless and um you know, you could see why if you were an artist with him in the studio, it's just everything feels really comfortable. And then other things you learn just being around him, like the way he pl- his 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 um, his dynamic balance behind the drums, like his volume, like he gets the most amazing cross stick sound. You know how sometimes it can be hard to get a consistent cross stick sound yeah, like that cuts and, and has a knock to it and all that, like his most beautiful cross stick sound that's just incredibly consistent his his right foot is really strong in relation to other things like in a good way when it needs to be like the way he he mixes his own his own limbs on the kit you know was really a trip to be around and kind of feel and see and um wow just what an incredible opportunity yeah it's been three years now of getting to do that with him and
0: Man, what a cool gig. I mean, yeah. I, I, and, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say between the two of you guys, probably. I, Ten to fifteen thousand records between the two of you. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, it's a ridiculous number because I mean, he's recorded with everybody, and you're closing in on that, right? I mean,
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, i no, it's really nice. Uh, definitely ten to fifteen thousand. I bet with him alone. Oh you know, well, yeah. Sure.
0: I mean, it's crazy.
1: Um, but no, I've, I've been lucky to have a chance to record with saying you know, I could only dream that I've been able to record with some of the people I've been able to record with. Uh, but you know, the business has changed. It's wild. Like, you know, back then in the late seventies and, and, you know, early when he was really hidden and working all the time, I mean, those guys were doing just nonstop work, you know, and then the reality of New York today is man, you know, there's hardly any studios left in Manhattan to, to actually record live drums in, you know, and then, yeah. That sort of leads to, you know, I have a room floated in my apartment where I can do some tracking and trying to survive, you know, in the year 2019. But um, the era of, like, you know, sometimes people, I think, have a dream about, oh, I want to move to New York and I want to be a session player, you know. And I just don't know how much of a reality that is through, you know, through the lens of thinking of it, of being like Rick Marauder or Steve when things were really happening and everybody was doing a million sessions a day. It's just, not, I don't think it's a reality anymore, you know, in New York anyway.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I, I mean, so talk to me a little bit about that, if you don't mind. I mean, you mentioned your room, and I know that you do a lot of just incredible work out of your room, you know, uh, and, and there's some gr- great videos out there of you, you know, playing with an Ableton rig and just all kinds of cool stuff that you do. But if you're studio life is, is not what it was 10, 15 years ago. It's just unrealistic for somebody to move to New York and think they're going to take sessions away from a guy like Sean Pelton. You know, I, I, you didn't say that, I did.
1: Well, um, I think, yeah, it's more about not necessarily like for me or anybody else. It's more about just being realistic about, well, what, what does session work mean in the year 2019? In, in a place like New York, you know. Like, I think Nashville is still, you know, an environment where people show up and they all track together at the same time. And, um, you know, and and I don't know so much about LA. I think, obviously, there, too. And then, you know, and in New York, things have branched out where there's studios in Brooklyn and there's home studios everywhere, you know, across, I mean, all the major centers. But, man, the, the traditional look of that, of, like, there being like the power station which is called Avatar now but that it's now being sort of Berkeley came in and with a hedge fund guy and they you know they bought the place to keep it from becoming a condominium thing and i think it's being refurbished but it's really going to be you know a lot of an educational thing with Berkeley and it's amazing that the the studio is going to still survive but like the hit factory and then sony studios and then you know Clinton recording and all these like iconic spaces that used to be a part of the reality of New York, you know, that they're just not there anymore. And uh, so I think if you, if you'd really have to look at the reality of, like I said, the year 2019 in a place like New York and what's really going on, you know, because there used to also be like sort of a day to day thing with, with uh, the jingle sessions and, different things that were going on where, you know, if everything wasn't a major label record date, there were certain day-to-day things that were happening that you could survive and pay rent, you know? Yeah. And so much of that has changed, you know?
0: Well, I can't remember who I had on the show, but I had one of the Nashville cats on here, you know, that, that does a lot of session work in Nashville. And he was just talking about label budgets. You know, he said, when I first got into the business, it may have been Chris McHugh, actually. But yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't want to credit the wrong guest. But you know, the the gist of the conversation was, you know, twenty years ago, a major label release, the recording budget was, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now it might be twenty thousand dollars. You know, you you can't go in and, you know, and do forty seven drum takes on every track. You know, you, you got to go in and and nail it pretty fast.
1: Yeah, I think that. That thing about going in and and being someone that is, I, th- I think people that that if that's saving money for the people that are hiring you, you know, definitely they. I think that's a skill that people like. But then, what's interesting about that? I remember talking to someone that now with Pro Tools and all the ability to sort of manipulate everything and. And in bringing this up, I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to call it out as a negative or a positive. It's more like just a reality to try to survive. But, you know, you can have a drummer that maybe isn't super experienced and they can cobble together a really strong-sounding track out of playing that maybe wouldn't have been able to survive in, let's say, 1970 when everything was just going to tape and it had to be a super strong, consistent take from beginning to end, you know. And... Um,
0: yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, I, can you even buy splice tape anymore? I mean... <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, man. Get oh, the man. razor blade out and start, you know, chopping tape and trying to put something together, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then that's interesting because that full circle, it sort of leads to a thing about, you know, when drummers that maybe have great ideas for parts, so say you're not maybe the strongest drummer but you're super creative and if they need something really different for the bridge or you know the breakdown verse and like you know you have a sense of vision with sound that's really strong like it's wild how different skills and depending on the context like uh, the ability to come up with parts you know drummers that that have a great sensibility about parts and like you know, understand like all the Ringo stuff that happened or the drum parts on the Soundgarden record. And then if they want somebody with that kind of knowledge, you know, that can be really valuable. And then there's other times where they don't want anybody that they just really want a human drum machine and for you to just shut up and do what they say, you know.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Copy the demo kind of thing. Right.
1: Yeah. And I've seen that go down a lot too. And then your ability as a drummer in that seat to be able to handle both situations and be cool about it and not you know not be take it personally or you know be able to take direction Man, there's so much going on there with surviving you know with a pair of headphones on in the studio and the temperament it can take to to deal with all the different stuff you know, know when to know when to shut up know when to have ideas um
0: yeah, I mean that's that's a great point. I mean, so I, I, you know, I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are curious as well. You know, your your recording credits, you know, and, and I mentioned this in the intro, but I mean, it literally, you know, ranges from you know like Sheryl Crow, Van Morrison, Elton John. I mean, you know, some of these Johnny Cash, some of these iconic folks to you know uh, pop stuff with you know pink and you know Carly Simon the Dixie chicks I mean you've recorded with just just everybody you know I mean you've got just such a discography is there a particular project that you would point to to say look this is the absolute peak of Sean Pelton's drumming or uh, are all of them cool to you for different reasons
1: yeah it's wild I guess um you know, certain things have more resonance for drummers maybe than uh, you know. But um, I did some records with Peter Wolf, three or four records that I'm I'm proud of. Sort of the organic trip of those. Uh, he's the guy from Jay Gals' band. Oh yeah. And like Keith Richards is on one of the tracks. And you know, there's some things where it's set up with like a washboard and like a trippy, trippy kind of mutant setup. You know, and some rootsy things. And um, uh, There was the Sean Colvin record I did that back in the late '90s that had some won a couple Grammys and um, a few small repairs. That some that was sort of a big thing. Um, I mean, it didn't sell a ton, but it was a really fun record to work on. And um, man, I just feel lucky to have been able to record with all. I mean, there's some really interesting situations where, like, there was a Ray Charles thing with Van Morrison, and it was right before Ray passed, and it was a live thing. And then on the gig, Ray actually kinda of spaced the bridge and the whole thing kinda of fell apart. But uh Phil Ramon was producing who was an amazing amazing musician to be around, producer guy spirit. And he had recorded the whole rehearsal thing, you know, and they ended up being able to splice like the bridge from the afternoon sound check thing into the and it and it made it made the record. Um, but different things like that were, you know, being able to do something with Bruce Springsteen, you know, or, or like the, I got to do a couple of things with Bob Dylan and it was just like, wow, you know, just yeah. I had, I thought it was all a dream, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it, you know, what an amazing career and, you know, I hate to jump around so much, but, you know, I want to be respectful of your time and, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, kill your evening here, but, you know, one of the things that I I think a lot of people don't know about you or or maybe they've kind of forgotten about is you filled in for Anton on Letterman's show quite a bit, you know? And so, I mean, that's, and you mentioned you, you did rock and roll hall of fame with him. Uh, You know, your career has just been all of these, amazing, amazing experiences. And, you know, I I guess my question, what I'm ultimately getting at is, do you credit that to your playing ability, your networking, your education, or, or I'm sure it's kind of, you know, a combination of all those things, but, you know, how have you ended up in all these different situations? You've said lucky a few times, and I know you feel lucky, but I think it's a lot of hard work, too, right?
1: Yeah, no, amen, amen. And, you know, I've I've kind of given everything to the— I just love it uh, so much. And, you know, um, like I never figured out how to have a family and then commit the kind of time that I— that it would take to sort of have it together to make all all the gigs and stuff. And, um, you know, so I, it's been some sacrifices in that way. And, um, you know, it's interesting about the Letterman thing. Um, that's one of the harder gigs to sub on as far as I, I've i been kind of lucky where I also subbed on the Conan show a couple of times for Max. Yeah, And then the, the Letterman thing and then, you know, doing the SNL thing. So sort of seeing that these three different television shows and then how what's similar and what's not similar and what's the trip is that SNL is pretty straight ahead because there's a, um, because it has a five piece horn section, there's charts and everything's sort of written out. And, um, I mean, when GE was running the band, it was a little bit looser and GE sometimes we'd be live on air and he would just go to the edge of the stage and just start playing some stuff. And, and you know, <laughs> you would just, you uh, would expect you to just come in and figure it out, you know? And, uh, and I think that's from him working with Bob, you know, because Bob would do that to those guys in the band. I think you would just start a tune. And, um, and you know, that had a certain thrill and excitement to it, but it was really like being on a, a tightrope in some ways. And then, um, but the thing with the Letterman thing that's a trip was having to kind of go in seamlessly and fill in for a, in a group that had been doing something together for like 20 years. And there's not like a lot of charts there. And uh, like, for instance, there was a theme, and the theme has sort of a seven, eight bar in it. It's trippy. And um, and then one time I came and Paul goes, oh, by the way, we've taken uh, two beats out of the theme or something. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't really... He goes, you'll kind of hear it or something. I'm like, oh. and I was kind of like pissing down my pants. Like, oh, my God, where what is you know? And uh, so the amount of, like, homework I had to do to sort of be able to show up and make it happen... Like i was saying, you sort of have 10 seconds sometime to make a strong impression as a drummer, you know. And um, those that those guys, they know so many tunes. Like for instance, you know, like dude looks like a lady, like Aerosmith, like so. You know, everybody can sort of say, dude looks like a lady. But you know, the bridge, I think it's like maybe an odd phrase, and you know. And so uh, I remember Paul once we were doing um, Sam and Dave tune. Hold on, I'm coming. And uh, so we're yeah. on the on the fade out, and hold on, don't touch, and you know, maybe at the end of a phrase, like in the fade out, like I, I did like kind of a Motown kind, and it was like a Stax tune, but like it was like, you know, and, and um, we were done, and then Paul goes, hey man, I don't think there's any fills on that on the outro, you know, <laughs> I think, oh my God, this, I can't believe it, you know, this is so wild, you know, and then he goes, yeah, I think it's just da-da-da, you know, and then I went back and listened and he was right, you know, and I think it was all those years he sort of did the Blues Brothers thing in the yeah. 70s, you know, and those cats. And he's got like kind of a photographic memory, you know. Well, um, the, the
0: thing with the with the shows, though, that that I've always found interesting, like with Conan or Letterman or, or Johnny Carson, any of those things is like when they come back from break, you know, your, your MD, your musical director, they'll end in the middle of a phrase. You know, it's like we have to get out of the way so the show can go on. And, you know, your head had better be on a swivel looking, you know, looking for the end, right?
1: Oh, man. I mean, yeah. And it's really, it's stressful because it wasn't like we would do it and Paul would say, okay, so on this one we're going to end here and it's going to, we're always in like this. Or it was never like that. It would be, he had some hand signals where um, if his thumb was up, like pointed up and he did a cut off, it kind of meant that you were going to end on an upbeat somehow, like on the end of four or something like that. And then I think his fist meant, like, maybe a held chord, but he had, like, a whole thing going on, and he also had these two microphones, so one microphone was live to Dave, and then the other microphone was to the band, and so he could put a foot switch down, and, but I remember once subbing, we were live on the air, and maybe it was one of those things like, letters, you've got letters, you've got, (laughs) like, really fast, like, Broadway, kind of thing, and it was on the sheet that we were doing, but he hadn't really covered it, and then. We're live on there, and all of a sudden he goes, three, four. And I didn't know what we were going into, you know. It was a thing like, I thought, oh, my God, is this a shuffle, or is it straight eighths or something? And then I sort of just played big quarter notes, you know, on the cymbal and didn't do any subdivisions. And it all worked out, but it was just an interesting He goes, oh, man, I'm so sorry I didn't tell you we were getting ready to do that when we were, you know. And uh, so, man, it, that, that's, the hard, that's the hardest one. That was the hardest one to kind of sit in and, and make it happen, you know takes a lot it took a lot of homework you
0: know yeah that's so um, awesome man i mean you've just had so many cool experiences i just you know and again i've been such a fan of your playing over the years this has just been a super thrill for me um one of the one of our traditions on the show uh if you've ever listened it is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice um. so you know what would you say to other musicians other drummers and I think your perspective on this is going to be really really cool and hip but what's the good piece of advice you would offer to all of us
1: well I think you know if you want to have a career in music you know you, you at the most basic gut level I think you should love it more than anything you can imagine and I, th- I love that phrase about, well, don't don't be in the music business if you can imagine doing anything else. Because maybe it's hip to go do the other thing and have music as a hobby, you know. Because if the thing about a life in music and putting to get, making a living, like, decade after decade after decade, I think maybe it was Rick Morata that was saying, you know, if you're doing sessions or freelancing, like, a lot of times you might have to kiss a lot of frogs, you know. And you'll find yourself <laughs> in situations where it may not be what you were thinking when you thought about a great career in music, but then from a survival standpoint, you know, it may be the thing that's helping you not go broke and lose your house or lose the rent, you know, and so, man, there's a, there's a real thing there about, like, when, before I got the SNL gig, I remember I was doing this blues gig and coming back, like, 3 in the morning, and... I thought, man, you know, I'm never going to really have any health insurance. I'm never going to, you know... And I'd been... You know, the whole thing of sleeping on the floor with five of the cats and eating tuna and and being in a band that gets in a van and, you know... But I knew in my gut that there was nothing else that I was going to do and that I loved it so much and that this was this... It was almost felt like a calling to be a musician, you know? And... So that for me has sort of been a guiding light and whether I was gonna be fortunate or, or die destitute <laughs> I, knew that I that as musician and then I don't know if that's the healthy way to go like you know if you if you think that you want to have a family and put kids through college and stuff I mean the music business is a way to do all that I mean wow you know that's so hard to do year after year like decade after decade stitch together a career as a drummer you know and then with everything changing so much you know, with streaming and the, sort of the upending of the the way the music business used to work for someone like my age, you know, it's just been interesting to see how. I mean, you know, other people have really figured out how to do it, you know, with, um, with YouTube and different things, and I think it's really, really great and smart how people have figured out how to survive, you know. But, man, it's not easy, and if you don't love it and if you don't have sort of the temperament and the kind of mental tolerance to deal with so much stuff that gets thrown at you to survive in the business, you know. Um, and definitely the idea of coming to New York and trying to survive as a session player, I just don't know if that's a reality, sort of just, you know, doing sessions anymore. Uh, it's really interesting. But, but there are other ways to put it together and, you know, but man, do it because you love it. And maybe it's okay to not have to survive from it financially if there's a way to figure somewhere else to make your money and keep keep the music thing as your passion and what you really enjoy and i don't think you should feel bad about that but man doing it full time and piecing it together decade after decade after decade that's that's really a that's
0: a a lot you know yeah it's it's a tall order especially in this day and age and you know i mean i i don't think i don't think anybody would would disagree with the fact that you know, the business is different now than it was even, you know, 18 months ago, you know, let alone 18 years ago, you know, it's, it, it's just constantly evolving and it's harder and harder to, you know, as you say, you know, thread it together for decade after decade and, and make a decent living at it. But that just wonderful words of advice, Sean, um, Man, I, again, thank you so much for for taking time and coming on the drum shuffle. We really appreciate it. And it goes without saying, man, it's an open door. Anytime you want to come on here and talk, brother, you're always welcome on this program.
1: Oh man, yeah. Well, Jamie, man, thanks so much for having me. And um, I love what you're doing. It's great interviews, and man, I'm really honored to be a part of it. So. Thank you guys
0: so much. Well, uh, thank you, Sean. We we appreciate it, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch real soon. We'll we'll do a follow up with you here before uh, before too long because you've always got so much cool stuff going on. We gotta <laughs> we gotta keep up with you, right?
1: Yeah, I like it. I like it. We'll do it again.
0: All yeah. right, brother. Well, thanks again, man, and I'll talk to you real soon. All right, Jamie. Thanks a lot. All right, see I you, take buddy. Care. All right, guys and girls, that's going to do it for episode 66 of The Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate each and every one of you tuning in week after week. We simply cannot do this show without all of you doing so. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I ask you to do this each week, and we really do appreciate it. We are coming up on our 10,000th subscriber. So uh, again, if you know some folks that may like to listen to the Drum Shuffle, send them a link, send them a text, just mention it over coffee. We certainly do appreciate it. That's a huge milestone for us, and we're really looking forward to hitting it, and we can't do it without all of you guys. Of course, I love hearing from you throughout the week. The Drum Shuffle podcast at gmail.com is our email address, Uh, We do answer every single email that we get. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. Also, check out all those social media links on my website, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We do try to do some social media throughout the week, and we love interacting with all of you that way as well. Many thanks to Sean Pelton for taking time out of his immensely busy schedule to come on the show. And next week, you are not going to want to miss my friend, uh, Logan Todd, is going to be on the show. And Logan actually came up from Nashville to the Drum Shuffle Studios, and we did an in-person interview. So that'll be a little bit different. And uh, this is a young cat that you should know. He is going to be uh, much, much more important in the drumming world than uh, I could have ever hoped to be. Great guy doing some great stuff. So join me for Logan next week on the Drum Shuffle. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.